Ladies and gentlemen, pull out your hair ties. It's time to let your hair down and truly get funky. Welcome to All That's Hair, a podcast that explores the business of beauty from the origins of the art of hairdressing to how hair salons have evolved to meet the changing ideal of beauty. Today, we're going to talk about uh, family. We're going to talk about family. We're going to talk about creating products. uh, And we're going to talk about adventures uh, in beauty on the road, uh, meeting salon owners and uh, experiences. Today, um, I'm joined not by Marco and Leo. I am joined by Marco. Hey, Ken. Hey, everybody. How are you today? I feel lonely over here. It's weird not having my sidekick beside me. I know. you. Uh, I feel like I'm cheating on him or something. You know, it's a weird, weird feeling right now. (laughs) You need a mannequin head and like a bottle of Camus right next to you. Yeah, I think so. A little picture, maybe. Uh, (laughs) Thanks. I'm excited for today. Fun to share a story here. uh, We need a Leonardo standee cut out. Yes. Yeah. He's actually on the road today, uh, traveling around, working with a sales rep. So I thought we'd uh, take some time to, you know, get on uh, by myself and dish all his dirty secrets where he can't yell at me. You know, he'll have to listen to it afterwards. <laughs> one of uh, one of the things we were going to talk about today is uh, is is working with family um, for people who don't know Redavid or the Redavid story. I think it'll be interesting to hear it from your perspective. We've we've heard a lot of it from Leo's perspective, um, what led him to create the line. But, you know, um, you starting at a young age, going on the road with your dad and uh, while he's living his dream and you're supporting him in it, that must have been a really interesting growing up experience. Absolutely. I mean, there was, uh, I mean, I remember vividly back it, it all started in 1992 is when he launched his first hair care product line and um it was called redavid salon products or redavid hair products back then actually uh and he launched in a retail store across canada here called shoppers drug marts and launched in about a hundred of them and i remember he had an old beat up Dodge Omni with a U-Haul roof rack. And he, he used to uh, put the product in there and just drive door to door, much like we're doing today. But instead of going to salons, he was going to these retail stores and uh, he was doing makeovers in the store. So he would set up by his product and, you know, people that would come in could book a makeover or book, you know, we I, he had me handing out brochures and samples, had me all dressed to the nines in a mech suits and stuff. Back then I was nine years old, uh, eight, eight, nine years old. And he used to, I used to remember folding the brochures that he had printed off the night before and we'd just hand them out, ask people if they wanted a makeover and he would come in. And uh, back then it was the volumizer was like the biggest thing because it was all mousses and it was one of the first spray thickening sprays out there. And he would just do demo after demo doing these big 90s hair and uh, girls would be walking out buying product like crazy. And yeah, I remember that vividly, especially... Uh, one road trip we did from 
uh, Vancouver here. Those Canadians listening, people will know we went to Williams Lake, Quinell, and Prince George, and uh, stopped at all the little touristy attractions along the way, and uh, we got pictures and, and videos of it that I, I remember very well. It's was, it was a good memory of mine. He knew what he was doing. I'm sure that, you know, an adorable little kid handing out stuff and, you know. Oh, for sure. You used me 100%. Oh, yeah. Nobody said no to me at nine years old, you know. They're like, okay. <laughs> they just come over and I would pull them over to the demo area. And, you know, I, I remember he had me like, oh, just go get that person over there. And he would like point over and I'd walk across the mall and come over and talk to somebody. And, you know, he'd look for people that hair that he could really redo. But it was cool. I mean, they even had like a makeup artist that would do full makeovers. So you could walk into, you know, I guess the equivalent in the U.S. would be basically like an Alta essentially and you could walk in and, and get a makeover and, and leave with some product it was pretty cool pretty fun days what was uh, what was that experience like for you I mean it's it's a really it, it's an unusual growing up experience for kids um, I, I mean going Definitely. going to work with your dad essentially but not really working with him uh, for me, it was honestly, I, I have, it was so much fun. Like I just remember, you know, eating out every single night. And, and back then, you know, I would, my, my mom and stepdad, we were from a, a middle-class working-class family. So, you know, we, we didn't eat out maybe once a month we would eat out. So I, I remember having every meal at a restaurant for a whole week was like the coolest experience of my life. And, you know, remembering things like that and remembering, you know, my dad would let me have pop and stuff, you know, at nine years old, that was a big deal. Mom didn't let me do that sort of stuff. So uh, honestly, it was just such a good experience. I, I remember it very well. And I, I just, it was so you know, I, I would see my dad's on the weekends. My, my mom and him split up when I was young. So it was just really cool to spend that much time with him. And for me, it felt like a vacation. It didn't work, even though he did pay me. So technically I was working, you know, child labor, but still he gave me 50 bucks for the week. And, uh, you know, my mom, God bless her soul. She, she photocopied and laminated that first check for me. And, uh, yeah, it was, I, I still have it. We've still put it in some videos and stuff. $50, 1992. <laughs> That's pretty good money for a kid in 1992. <laughs> Not bad. I felt like I was rich. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good money. Uh, mm -hmm. What, um, as far as you, your dad's story, we've, we've, a little bit about and he's shared before um and the road to get here like the road for for so many small business owners um has had its its stops starts its restarts and rebounds um, yeah with with the the line where it was the first time around um seeing what what he sacrificed that must have been pretty hard after really you experienced that journey with him and then for you know to be living out of a warehouse practically is that it yeah. must have been hard to see your dad try and fight through that well the the warehouse that was 
that was right before this happened. So he sold everything he owned. He had this, uh, I remember he had this Datsun 240 that he turned into a convertible and it was a show car, one of the only convertible Datsuns in the country. And, you know, he had it all tricked out and it was like his baby. And and I, I remember getting picked up from my mom's in that car and he would put the yellow page phone books down on the seat so I could see over the dash. And, you know, he sold that car sold everything when him and my mom split up and put all of his money into redavid and uh you know was living in a warehouse because he couldn't afford both rent and the warehouse and you know i remember staying the night and going to visit him on the weekends and it was you know a big massive warehouse and it sort of had one little room that had you know a, a cut out window in it and he had his bed and his end table and the tv in there and you know i would visit him and uh, it was I, I i for me it was such an amazing time because i was still just being with my dad and i loved it but you know looking back i can't imagine how difficult that time must have been for him to you know go from having it all to owning his home with my mom to having you know his dream car to living in a warehouse surrounded by bottles of his product and, and chasing a dream but you know he really did put it all on the line he didn't have two nickels to rub together like he he would tell me stories about how when he would go do these events and sell product he asked them to pay in cash so that he had enough gas so he could put gas in the car to get home Jeez. like that's how how intense these these times were for him but you know what's even more intense is i didn't realize what he lost when he lost that business until recently um i found an old spreadsheet old financial statements from 1992 that year he launched in shoppers drug mart did $9,000 in sales in January. And by December, they did 1.2 million in a hundred stores uh, across Canada, across Western Canada in one year. He was supposed to be the next, you know, Alberto essentially was who they were going for. Like things were skyrocketing for my dad. He went, went absolutely insane. Like, you know, that money now is crazy. I, I didn't realize how, how, uh, you know, he told me, oh, yeah, I was so successful. It was great. But I didn't realize how successful until I saw, saw those financial statements and the plan. I saw business plans. They were supposed to be in overweighty foods and, in, in, um, you know, into London drugs, going into pharma saves all across Canada. And, you know, the projections were insane. You know, they were talking about $30 million the next year across just Canada in a retail line in 1992. So, you know, my dad was on the way up to the top in, in 1992 and then um you know had a friend that convinced him to take this company public you know with numbers like this let's let's take it public and and you know my dad my dad's a high school dropout he he moved to to italy or moved from italy to canada in grade eight had one year of canadian education and had to drop out and start construction to provide for his family so you know he, he in a He's not a businessman in the sense of like the, you know, the business side of things, but my dad is very much the school of hard knocks and one of the best businessmen I know now from what he's gone through and all of the challenges, but he trusted his friend at the time and said, all right, let's, let's take this company public. And it turned out, you know, my dad signed on the dotted line and uh, ended up losing control of the company and it just drove it into the ground. It was just a pump and dump 
stock move, a bunch of Chinese investors and a bunch of, you know, scammers in Vancouver back in the old Vancouver Stock Exchange days, um, you know, kind of the wild, wild west out here. And they took control of the company for my dad and, and he lost the controlling share. And, you know, he made a couple million dollars back then, but, you know, that was not what my dad was in it for. It wasn't, he wasn't never in it for the money. He was in it for doing something he loved and, and wanted to be, you know, a star in the industry and, and get out there and share his product. And then, uh, yeah, it was all taken from him. So, um, you know, I had heard that story, you know, but I didn't see the financials when that story, I didn't realize the potential and where he was going. And, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty wild just to hear it, you know, and, sacrificed everything to make that dream happen and it got taken from him in a in a power move there by somebody that uh took advantage of him so that sucks yeah it's pretty wild you know it's it's uh it's a pretty crazy you know he's told me so many crazy stories like that those same people broke into uh, a warehouse broke into his warehouse and stole computers that had formulations on them and stuff of his like what? yeah he's there's a pretty wild story you know my dad's writing a book uh, right now again you've seen some of yeah. it and these stories are in there and it's pretty it's pretty intense what he what he's been through you know and and what he's what he's gone through to get to where he is you know and we were on that meteoric rise again in october of 2019 when we launched with cosmoprof and everything was going amazing and we were on pace to be you know uh, uh, tens of millions of dollars a brand and then the pandemic just came and uh, we were like shaking our head and we're like, well, dad, at least it's a, just another chapter in your book here of, of, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to add to it. We thought it was done, but nope, we're adding another chapter in the trials and tribulations, uh, section of the book. But, uh, yeah, that, uh, back in 1992 is a pretty crazy story. And, you know, even before that, my dad had a haircare product company called just hair care. And uh, he was in Vancouver and he was actually actually shared a lab with AG with John and Lottie from way back in the day in Vancouver. Um, they shared a lab and, and my dad had a, a product line called Just and it was going crazy and it was just him. He was selling it out of the back of his his car into salons in Vancouver, ended up opening up over 100 salons in a year in the Vancouver market and uh, just ran out of money, couldn't fulfill orders, couldn't keep it going. So, you know, he stopped that. That was in 1986 and um, then, you know, went back cutting some hair and and had me had the family and and uh ended up um starting redavid and lost that and you know my dad's always kind of gone back to the salon after he's tried these brands you know tried to launch the brands and things happen is is his love has always been hair and cutting hair anyway you know and, and making products but he's always kind of gone back to it and then regrouped and then goes back at it you know there's there's really no quit in my dad there's there's no stopping he just continues to move forward no matter what life throws at him and it's an admirable trait why beauty because uh your your career trajectory was 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 not in fact to be working with your dad no, you know, it, people ask me that all the time. They kind of say like, oh, you know, are you a hairdresser? Did you get it? Did your dad get you into cutting hair and into the industry? And um, never, and he never pushed me to work with them. You know, I, I wanted um, to work with them in the summers and I used to just be his receptionist. I started at like 13 years old, 14 years old. And he had me, you know, 
answering phones and booking appointments and checking people in, taking their coats, getting them their coffee. Uh, you know, even had me doing deposits to the bank uh, when I was super, super young. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I just did that. And I actually was a golf professional. So I, I started golfing in high school and took to it pretty quickly and started playing on the, you know, senior team when I was in junior, um, ended up wanting to try to make a go at, at becoming a golf pro. So my dad always pushed me towards that. He was super supportive of my golf and, you know, saw that I had a talent there and a skill and he, um, you know, wanted me to go to college for golf. So I ended up going to um, a golf school off, off the island in Vancouver called Camosun, a professional golf management program with a business administration diploma as well attached to it. So it was three years. I went over there, played on the golf team, played college golf, and then ended up turning professional and uh, was teaching at, at one of the most prestigious courses in, in Vancouver here, you know, loving life, charging 125 bucks an hour for a golf lesson. Thought that was you know, my life to, for the rest of it and my career, I was, I was mentoring under John Asen, who is a, you know, a, one of the top pros in Vancouver and, you know, was planning to do that for the rest of my life. And, um, they, uh, sold the golf course. So they, it, it ended up being sold to a company that, uh, came to the owner in a dream. He's a Buddhist and uh, it was thought it was his destiny to own the golf course. So they purchased it without even looking at the books, not even realizing that the course was only built to sell homes and lost money every single year. It was kind of a lost leader. They thought that they could uh, buy the course and, and build homes on it, but it was all environmentally sensitive area that had to be park area. So they very quickly started to drive it into the ground, didn't realizing how much upkeep it took to keep that golf course in a level of you know $169 a round is what we used to charge and people could get their car washed while they were playing golf that's wow. the type of level this place was and um ended up driving it into the ground ended up like you know making my students pay for a bucket of range balls where it was used to be provided and it was just uh not a place for me so I ended up leaving and and about that time um, my dad, who, you know, was starting this iteration of Redavid and it was starting to, to go a bit. Um, he had somebody working for him um, that ended up leaving him high and dry, uh, got headhunted by a company and he was kind of doing all the back end stuff, all the, the, you know, emailing and bookkeeping and stuff that my dad doesn't necessarily do, you know, it's not his forte. Uh, he ended up getting head headhunted and left my dad stranded high and dry. So he was working, my dad was working with his ex-wife at the time and he had uh, hired Jennifer who's still with us today. And, um, you know, I kind of came in, said, dad, you know, you need some help with, maybe I'll, I'll help you with social media, just con commenting and try to post and stuff. And I had some time and just started, uh, very slowly and naturally, you know, it wasn't like, Oh, the, the sun comes in and, puts his name on the door and, and takes over and kind of gets things handed to him. I kind of came in slowly and uh, started just, you know, small. And, and uh, as we progressed, I started to make some more decisions and started to really kind of take to the industry and started really enjoying it. Um, loving started, you know, we were with a distributor in Vancouver, very small, started, you know, doing meetings for them. And, you know, I, I can remember how nervous I was, <laughs> 
in front of 10 people doing a meeting, like my hands were shaking. And it was the first time I'd ever done a presentation before I was doing a PowerPoint and stuttering and so nervous. And it's, it's funny when I think back of it and now, you know, we'll be at a trade show in front of, you know, 500 people and it's no big deal or doing big launches in front of 400 Armstrong McCall franchisees and DSCs up on stage. It's, it's fun to kind of think back, but yeah, I started just doing that and, um, oversaw a packaging change that I kind of facilitated and, and thought would be a good um, change for Redavid. Um, what was inside the bottle didn't match the initial package we had. It was this all teal, kind of very retail, right? And that's my dad's sort of background there. And if it was on a retail shelf, very eye-catching, but it was almost too loud for the luxury high-end clean salons that we were going for, um, that our price point was, that the product inside was. So we decided to do a full packaging change uh, color-wise and schemes and kind of go um, with color-coded collections. Uh, and then I also oversaw the orchid oil launch from inception. So from, um, you know, when my dad had the idea for the dual therapy and it was shot down by everybody and, you know, people, the distributor we were with said, nobody's going to pay $50 for that. Uh, you know, it's, oh, it's too difficult to use the two pump systems, not going to work. I don't think it's a good idea. And my dad didn't listen to a single person and said, Nope, we've got a winner. This product is incredible the way it performs. And, uh, we launched the orchid line and launched the dual therapy and, um, about that time, we were in Punta Cana for Joico Destination Education and uh, got my dad nice and drunk. And uh, we had a walk on the beach and he offered me uh, the, the job as president. He said, I want you to run the company for one year. And if you do a good job, we'll, we'll reevaluate after one year and um, see where it goes. And that was four years ago now. So that was sort of my journey into David. Timing was perfect. Timing was everything. Uh, really, you know, I, I don't think I could have worked with my dad's ex-wife, to be honest. Um, you know, she she was the boss kind of. And, uh, you know, I don't know if she would have taken too kindly to me coming in. And, and they broke up at the same time that the guy left them and that I was coming in. And uh, it was just like timing was just perfect. You know, the golf course had to be purchased. Like, And now when I look back at it, I'm like, so many things happened perfectly for me and my dad to come together and to work together that I, I truly feel it's destiny. Like now I try to think what else I could do. And I can't even picture it. Honestly, I, I'm so grateful to be working with him and, and to be working together in, in this industry. Now I, I don't see myself doing anything else. And it's just, it's wild how many things had to fall into place and had to happen for us to come together after, you know, 30, one years so yeah the universe tends to to line things up when they're supposed to be a certain way yeah things just sort of fall into place you know you were you were talking about the uh, you know complexities with with ex-wives and one of the things that's that's pretty common in this industry is the kind of interpersonal relationships where it's it's husbands and wives running a salon or sisters, or brothers, um, or, or family-owning chain salons, it creates some real complexities to running a business. Um, how, how do you navigate that with your dad? What is the, the balance of that like? 
So, you know, it's got its pros and cons, obviously. Um, you know, the difficult things kind of is managing that fine line between am I talking to my dad or am I talking to my business partner? So sometimes I'm not the best at that and I'll talk to him like my dad and I, you know, I probably wouldn't speak to another employee the same way that I spoke to my dad. And, um, you know, that's a, a challenge that I work on, but honestly, my dad has been so good about letting me learn and letting me kind of experience. And I feel like that's the biggest piece is my dad really knows how to step back and put people in a position and let them kind of do their thing and work. He doesn't micromanage. So when I, when he said, you know, you, you make all the decisions, you go for it. He let me, you know, he, he, okay. You know, and at times I have to explain it to him and, and tell him, and, you know, we definitely don't agree all the time on certain things, you know, like sometimes you'll come up with wild product ideas and, uh, you know, you've heard it, Ken, and you've seen but it. Sometimes, and- you know, he'll get out of the car and you and I'll sit there and we'll start talking it through and there's some totally. more to it. Totally. Well, you know, we'll, we'll massage his ideas because yeah, yeah. one thing I love about my dad is no, how, no matter how many times people say no, no matter how many times, um, you know, I'll shut him down or say, I don't like that idea. He'll come out with something else. And, and a lot of the times it's off the top of his head. Like it just floated in there and he's going to spit it out. So his, his thought process is not necessarily refined. He hasn't thought about the, you know, the business side of things just comes up with the ideas, but that's why we work so well together because he'll throw out these crazy ideas and then I'll look at the logistical side of things and see, you know, can we implement this or what are the challenges or where we're going? So, you know, I love the fact that he does that. Like he'll never change. Like, you know, my dad, this is totally not, you know, regarding to business, but my dad has no problem asking for things. And that's something that I even have to work on. I'll sometimes just assume the answer is going to be a no. And my dad's like, well, you don't know till you ask. Like, for example, this is totally off topic, but I bought a, uh, like a shelving unit at Ikea and uh, it was in the as is section and they wouldn't deliver it. They said, oh, our delivery company doesn't deliver uh, as is furniture. I'm like, well, what the heck? I said, that would have been nice to know before I bought it. But anyways, I go, I get my dad's element. He comes and helps me out to, to pick it up and it doesn't fit in the element. And I'm like, oh my goodness. So I'm like calling U-Haul and my dad sees their delivery company loading something up and he goes, I'm going to go ask them. I said, dad, don't, don't bother. They just told me no. I said, they said their delivery company doesn't do it. And he goes, ah, come on. And he goes, Hey, you want to make a hundred bucks? And the guy goes, how? He says, deliver this to, you know, 20 minutes away. And the guy goes, done. Just like that. You know? And I'm like, what the heck dad? So I would have never asked because they already told me, no, you know, in the store, the delivery company doesn't deliver as is stuff. But my dad is like, you know, he's got that side of things where, Hey, doesn't hurt to ask. You what's the worst the, thing you say? Yeah, and you what's cut, the you cut out the middleman. No. You go straight to the guy. Yeah, what's the worst they could say is no. I said, you know what? You're right. So that's something that I learn on and something that he's really good at. And I think it's such a valuable thing in business to ask because you never know. You really don't know unless you ask. And that's something he's been amazing at since I started with the company. So I think a good dynamic that the two of you have that, that makes it really work, and I think everyone who has the opportunity to see you two on stage together, uh, much less in a meeting or on the road, is the both of you have such a fundamental respect for the other. Um, 
and you're right. He, I, I think this. It's also the sign of a great leader. Great leaders recognize that they aren't the be all end all, and are wise enough to to find people who have skill sets that they don't, and then mm-hmm. put them in a place, and then just let them run and flourish. Yeah, that's definitely something he's always been good at. Uh, you know, finding people to do the jobs that he can't do. He's been very good at that, you know, from our inventory manager to you to, you know, Jen to, to just finding those people, you know, that can do what he can't do. Now, the difficult thing is one day going to be finding somebody to do what he can do. You know, that's something he talks about all the time is, you know, he wants to find somebody that can replace him. And, you know, I, there's just no replacing him. There's no replacing the, the banter that my dad and I have back and forth. Like when we're on the road, I can't imagine what, you know, sometimes doing the things that I do. And I still want a road show. Damn it. That that yeah. is is gold. Yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna have our one of our uh, a videographer follow us one day one one trip and just kind of show because like the we have so much fun like there's times where we're laughing and you know we we try not to take life too serious and you know it was really difficult through the pandemic not to and you know with all the challenges we faced and you know we kind of had the life sucked out of us for a bit but getting back on the road was like so refreshing and just being together and being out there. And, you know, that's, that's one of the major pros for me through this whole process is um, having my dad there, you know, just as a best friend to go through the challenge that we just went through and that we're still going through with the pandemic and, and moving forward and having somebody that is like your cheerleader and that I'm cheerleading them and that we're together all the time. It's like, man, it would have been so difficult to, to get through something like this without having, you know, my dad and my best friend to, to help. And um, yeah, I'm forever grateful, but uh, yeah, we have, we have a lot of fun together, you know, people, it's not an act what you see with my dad and I, like, you know, we're, we're ourselves. And um, I feel like that's something that, people will relate to. And it's funny, I I just got a a Facebook memory pop up today. And and this is the memory. It was a message from a a sales rep um, with a distributor we opened. She said, uh, good morning, Marco. Just a note to let you know, my clients are loving Redavid. My reorders are super. Having Leo here was a home run. Everyone loves him. Have a great day. I said, thank you, Sheila, for the message and for pushing Redavid. You rock. She said, I love selling Redavid because it's the best line that I've ever used and because you guys are so real. You go the extra mile to make things happen and that means everything. And, you know, that is something from the very beginning that my dad said to me uh, that I'll never kind of, I'll never forget and I'll always try to live up to it. He said, you know, I said, dad, like, you know, how do we get people to, to buy our product? How do we get people to want to be in business with Redavid back when we were opening up distributors and back even before Cosmoprof when we were about to go do a meeting uh you know we were still working out of a one-bedroom apartment with my desk half in the kitchen and half in the living room and we were about to go have a meeting with the biggest distributor in the world that was interested in carrying our product in Cosmoprof and I was like you know, having a little bit of a panic attack. I'm like, how do we do this status? And how do we get them to like us and to want our product? And my dad said, 
just be ourselves. So just be ourselves. Don't be fake because people are getting better at at seeing through fakeness these days, you know, like they're, they're getting better at sifting through all the crap and realizing the people who are real. And, you know, that's been a core value of our, our company since we started it was to just be us and, you know, just be ourselves. And I'm, I'm a goof. I'm a big goof. And a lot of people, you know, they, they see me with my suit on and, you know, I, I've, I've, I kind of have like a, try to portray this like professionalism, but I'm a, big goof and if you ask my wife you know i do silly dances and i'm goofing around and i'm having fun and i do that in the salon it's like why i kind of you know needle my dad and poke him and have fun because that's what i would do in real life so i do it when we're doing our presentations and i do it on the road because that's just who we are and um i'll never change that and it's i think it's one of the reasons why we can put so much work and effort into what we're doing, uh, being on the road for you know eleven weeks at a time or five weeks at a time and working because it's not an act. We're not faking anything. We're just going out there and being us, and you know, hopefully, people want to do business with us. So, yeah, it's this industry is is odd in that it's still you know 10, 15 years in. It's an industry that, in some ways, is always a little bit behind the times um, because it's a service industry. And as much yeah. as our world remains digitized, everything that a hairdresser does in a salon is very real. It's personable. A hairdresser is the most important person in your life, statistically, where you retain them longer <laughs> than most relationships. I um, love that I, and, you know, I think because this industry is is a huge cash cow, I think the with, with Wall Street and multinational conglomerates, as you call them, the big shampoo, as much as they, they try and cash in on that, the disconnect always is they're in this because they want both the hairdresser's money and they want the consumer's money. And yeah. they don't care whether you purchase it in a drugstore on Amazon or if you buy it through a salon. They want all the money. And, totally. and because that's the primary motivator, I think that is, is where a lot of their messaging and their, their value offering is falling flat. Because stylists want realness. They want yeah. to see the kind of banter that they have in salon from real people who aren't lying out the side of their face and over-promising to get on the shelf and then you never see them again. <laughs> like like they, you get on the shelf and then the, the support and value just evaporates and it's up to you to yeah. move it. That happens so often in this business. Yeah, it, it really does. You know, I, I mean, there's seven companies that own 90% of the beauty brands out there right now, you know, and it's, there's a reason for that because, you know, they're, they're making money, you know, and, and it's, it's sort of, you know, they've kind of taken over and they lost that flavor. And now they just kind of jump on trends and they, they try to sell their product with marketing gimmicks. And yeah, it, it's, there's a lot of, times in this industry where i like ugh, like i i feel dirty about it like even, it's not even professional beauty it's just beauty in general you know it's beauty products in general like 
watch you can watch a commercial watch tv for half an hour and you'll see a commercial whether it be pantene or you know garnier or whatever and you know just yesterday i saw one and it's like oh four times stronger more conditioning with uh, our conditioner and then the asterisk says versus a non-conditioning shampoo so well you're comparing a conditioner to a shampoo no kidding like, you sent me that I, text I, message and you were so authentically outraged that stuff just bugs me so much i do, i just like it's so ridiculous and i just want to like call it out and just like why are you doing that like it's and that stuff there is just to sell that's just to make money they're, they're tricking you they're trying to trick the consumer into buying their product with tricks and gimmicks like that it, it's uh it, it it bugs me so much, Ken. I don't even know why. But And that right there brings me back to respect because so many large brands, and I've been in this industry and I've talked to to people on multiple levels um, for, for today, what are some of the largest brands in the industry, and you would be horrified how little respect the people at the top of those companies have or the users of their product. Yeah. You would be shocked at some of the ideas or strategies where they think hairdressers or salon owners, um, consumers are just so dumb that you have to break it down like that as opposed to just telling them what a product is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a sad piece. It's sad part of our industry but you know that's why my dad and i are just so set on being authentic and just being real and you know it'll take us longer to get to the top the climb's going to be harder because you know we're not using marketing gimmicks and but for us it's about longevity it's about being here you know for a long time you know it's not something that we're just trying to get in make some money and get out this for me is a, a legacy brand that, you know, hopefully one day, you know, my daughter who's due tomorrow, <laughs> hopefully she'll want to join the family business and, and take it over. You know, this is not just a, a flash in the pan for us. You know, we, we look up to companies like Paul Mitchell that, uh, you know, it's been around forever and it's still family owned and family run. Like that's the type of brand that, uh, you know, we want to be and, and we want to grow moving forward. So on the road, uh, what has been for you the most surprising thing since you've started going on the road and meeting with salons? Um, I would say so. I don't know. This for me, the in the beginning, it was uh, how receptive American salons were. So. Um, compared to Vancouver, I don't know what it is about Vancouver, but like if we go into a salon here and, you know, we were detailing with, uh, with a distributor in, in Canada here back when we first started and it was, man, it was like pulling teeth to get meetings to go in and they just had this attitude about them. And then, you know, we would walk into salons in, you know, the States and most recently we were in San Antonio and, and this salon called Altamoda, just a gorgeous salon in the rim district of san antonio and i was like you know 
prepared to be like blown off a little bit because you know these fancy salons i'm used to them having a little bit of you know a little bit of attitude man they they stopped their whole day in the middle of a thursday and gave an hour for us to do a presentation and and pulled every hairdresser into this salon and i was just like this is amazing and, and that still happens to me you know we have this reception from people and um i don't know if it's a canadian thing a u.s thing or you know maybe just vancouver we got a little bit of you know a little bit of attitude but the the reception and that's not every salon let me tell you that's just some you know but we have a, a great base and some amazing salons in vancouver that you know we have awesome relationships with that we've had for years but the reception in the u.s um which was different for me was i was shocked that it was we were being more we're more re well received in the u.s than we were in canada so that's one of the big kind of like wow uh, moments and then the other thing and I, I know i speak for my dad when i say this is how humongous the united states really is like it's it just boggles my mind like you know canada we've got 36 million people i think in all of canada that's you know, there's more people in Texas and California, you know, each than that, than our entire population. But like, you know, going into certain salons that, you know, for us felt like, you know, we're in little towns like, you know, Pewaukee, Wisconsin, for example, we went into a salon called Spargo and man, it was gorgeous. They had a waterfall inside the salon from the salon level down to the spa level. They had Italian artifacts from, you know, that were literal actual artifacts in, um, you know, temperature controlled frames with the description on it. And it was all Roman and like Colosseum-esque and, you know, that was in a small town in Wisconsin, you know, like the beautiful places. And yeah, it was just, uh, I think just the sheer size of the United States. And, you know, we could work every day on the road for the next 10 years and, and not hit every salon that our distributors call on. You know, that's just the amount of people blows our mind. It's also too, I, I think the part of that reception has to be that in this day and age, salons don't get to have the owner and founder of a brand and the <laughs> owner uh, the owner's son and the president of the company that just doesn't happen not like it used to in the old days yeah yeah fair you know that could be it uh for sure you know it does help the sales reps get some appointments when they get to say that the owners are there and you know they they can talk about the product and and what's what it's been doing but you know you know, we've, we've been in salons in, you know, Fargo, North Dakota, and uh, we're in a salon and it was a smaller salon, you know, six people. And the guy was telling about, about uh, how he had Rusk in there, you know, in his salon 20 years ago, it came and we were the, we were the first owner of a brand since Irvin Rusk to come into a salon. Um, or since I think it was either Rita or Irvin, I can't remember who we had in there, but he said we were the very first owner to be in there uh since that since 25 years ago with rusk or whatever you know that that's the that's type smart. of stuff like i love hearing you know and like we have uh, to be honest we have those like smaller areas that that's where we have the most success because we've given time like i remember one time we drove for six hours uh to go from um i can't remember the town we were in bowman montana 
And when we drove like, you know, four, I think it was like four hours from one side of Montana to the other to go into a salon that carried our product to do a product knowledge class for two hairdressers, you know, and it was, uh, it was just like that to us. There's no salon too small to get out there because, you know, that salon will forever remember that experience with Redavid. And, you know, we have built that relationship with them. And that's what it's all about for us is building those relationships and, you know, being able to to grow and, and you know, gain the trust of the hairdressers and, you know, know that, you know, we are a company that's doing it the way it used to be done. And yeah, it's, uh, it's cool. I mean, I, I, that's, I love being on the road. It's great. My wife doesn't love it so much, but, uh, you know, she's, uh, she spent the last nine months of this pregnancy. I was actually on the road for four and a half months of it, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a necessary thing to do right now, especially, you know, we see that's how we grow the most, you know, and, right. and getting out there and, and door to door one salon at a time, really, you know? Yeah. So, and also the fact that, uh, you know, my dad, he packs a lot. So, uh, you know, that surprises me too when we're on the road. Excuse me, Ken. Yeah. My uh, plug just came out here. But yeah, it's uh, it's nice to see that level of, of authentic interest in, in salon business. And also, I think it's, it can be frustrating too for salons to be understood. And even for owners to see what goes on in their salon, the struggles that they're going through, hear some of their challenges, all of which inspires ideas. I, I know a lot of your dad's ideas come from when you walk out of a salon and it's something that just floated into his head based on something that an owner was talking about, something that he noticed, something that was maybe missing. Um, oh, yeah. It really totally. inspires authentic creation. Yeah. Yeah, you know, my dad, like when he's out there and when he's working and stuff, like that's when his, his your brain is moving the most, you know. Although, you know, he does need a good month, a year just to refresh and recharge. He likes a little two weeks in this winter, two weeks in the summer. Uh, and when he comes back from those trips, he's even more, you know, on. So I feel like that kind of hints to the, you know, take those breaks every once in a while. Don't get burnt out. It'll be worth it. But uh, yeah, you know, he, he does take his inspiration from hairdressers. It's one of the reasons why like he gives out his personal cell number. Uh, you know, I give out my personal cell number for hairdressers that are in there, but for him, he likes them to show them, show him the work that they're doing. Yeah. You know, and you know, even though like, you know, my dad's texting is the greatest and you know, he's, he's an immigrant and, but he, he loves to communicate with his hairdressers. He loves to see the work that they're doing and, and the products and sharing and showcasing like, you know, uh, my dad loves TikTok right now. I don't even have TikTok, but he's got it. You know, he loves it because he can just scroll and scroll and see like cool haircut, cool style, different works. And then he'll be like sitting at his desk and then I'll see him come in here and the door closes and the music goes on and he's got a mannequin and he's like, oh, I saw something on TikTok. I'm just going to, you know, put my twist on it and see what he, what he, you know, he starts working it and starts awesome. adjusting it. So, you know, he does get lots of inspiration from hairdressers and being on the road. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think that's, that's it then for, for this episode. Um, yeah. As far as, uh, as final thoughts um, in terms of maybe what the greatest lesson that you've learned 
while on the road? <laughs> while on the road. Oh, that's, uh, I mean, I guess it would probably be, uh, don't let the nose get to you. You know, there's, there's a lot of nose in this industry and not so much with the blonde therapy collection. I mean, we're batting like 90% any time we go in there, but you know, there are a lot of nose, but you know, don't let it get to you. You know, um, that's something like in the beginning, I used to take it personal and I'd be like, what the heck, why don't they like us? Why don't they want our product? You know, and it would, it would bug me, but you know, timing is everything when it comes to salons, when it comes to hairdressing, but uh, yeah, just kind of staying positive and, and keep going next one. And that's something my dad does so well. It's like next shakes it off next. No, don't let it go. And then I'll be like, you know, I'll, uh, no, I, I want that salon. You know, I want to, why don't they want it? And um, something he's been great at teaching me is to just, you know, move on to the next one. And uh, you know, you can't get yeses every time. Yeah. It's uh, the other thing that the time that I'd spent on the road, um, I think the greatest lesson I learned is the number one thing you can do is to just shut up for a minute. Ask, <laughs> ask a question. Let the salon yeah. owner talk to you. Let the hairdresser talk to you. What, what, why they got into the industry. Um, what some of the challenges they are. And what some of the pain points they are. What are they trying to solve? And can what you have or ideas that you have solve the problems that they have um i think that's that's one thing that i really learned is to the listening because particularly owners and hairdressers they want to be heard they want they want to know that you're not just in there to write an order and leave they want yeah. you to to actually listen to them absolutely that's great advice yeah well. Well, that is it for this episode of All That's Hair. Uh, we're going to be back next time digging into some some facts and figures of this industry for 2021 to catch up on, on what's changed and uh, post-COVID, how things are shaping up for this year. Until then, have a good day. Awesome. Thank you. See you again.